Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Sean Kane. Today, we sit down with the one and only Kate Atkinson, author of so many novels regarded as modern classics, including case histories and behind the scenes at the museum. Her latest, Transcription, is yet another tale considering the passage of time. It's not an official sequel to her acclaimed novel Life After Life, or its sequel A God in Ruins, which jump between future and past. But Transcription plays the same game. It starts as its main character, Juliet Armstrong, is hit by a car in a London street in 1981 and goes back in time to show us just how she got there. Lisa Allardyce met with Kate in our studios to talk about the novel. We are delighted to have Kate Atkinson with us to talk about her ninth novel, Transcription. Always tricky and risky to try and categorise one of Kate's novels, but I think it would be fair to call it a spy novel set for the most part during the Second World War. Our slightly battle-worn heroine, Julia Armstrong, works creating history programmes for children at the BBC, but she was formerly an agent for MI5. Kate, of course, is famous for her time-warping, genre-busting fiction, celebrated for her much-loved Jackson Brodie detective series. You can't see me doing the little inverted commas thing around detectives there, as well as her prize-winning Life After Life and God in Ruins, both set with terrifying immediacy during the Second World War. Now, it seems to me that transcription brings together both of these aspects of your work, the sort of puzzle-like mechanisms of the detective mystery at play in the spy genre. And also, of course, you've returned to the Second World War. Would you agree? <laughs> I, I never know when other people tell me what it is I write. I'm never, it's very different because you internalise so much of what you're writing. That when someone tells you what it is that you've written, you think, I, I sent the thinking, oh, is that what, oh, well, of course, I suppose that is like that, isn't it? So I don't think of it like that, which is a very unhelpful um, answer. I think with this book, it had more in common with the Jack, or the Jackson Brody mysteries, as we call them yeah. in America. You're doing, you're doing, <laughs> I'm doing the rabbiteers as well, as well. <laughs> um, because it was more of a, a puzzle box, or, yeah. well, actually, I'm not entirely sure what a puzzle box is, more of a jigsaw. It was put together in a way, it feels like it's put together in parts in the way that I have to write a detective novel because I have to go back when I'm writing crime. We'll stop using all rabbit ears. When I'm writing Jackson Brody books, I have to go back and seed a lot of things and I have to place a lot of things and move things around quite a lot. And so in that sense, this book felt more like that because it is, it has in a way, for me, it had more in common with a detective book than it does with the war novels because the war novels... Those narratives were really straightforward in many ways, especially Life After Life, because Life After Life... Life After Life is one of the least straightforward novels of the last... To me, it's my most straightforward book, because once once I got the rhythm of it, she dies, she comes back to life, she dies, she comes back to life, that was it, that was fine, I was happy. She dies, she comes back to life. So in that sense, for me, it was really simple, because I didn't have to think about too much about... Construction, basically. And, and I liked the structure, so within that structure I was happy. It had a rhythm to it. A God in Ruins is almost like separate chapters. They could have been moved around because there are ways of looking at one person's life through other people's eyes. But this book had to have both a continuity to it and a, a kind of mysterious element to it because it's, it is a book about 
ambiguity, which is a difficult thing to write about. So in a way, it was the worst of both worlds, because I find, although I love structure, I do find putting structure together can be a real challenge. Well, I'm going to move on because you've brought up structure, which is, of course, the big thing about your work. And um, the word that often seems to be used to describe your work, both in spirit and structure, is playful. And despite the pile-up of horrors, either in the Brodie books or in the war books, they're always great fun to read. Are they fun to write? I mean, fun is probably not the right word. They Fun's the wrong word because it's work. But <laughs> um, I think some are easier than others. It's as simple as that. You know, you, life after life, as I say, it was easy. You say not, but it was, it was easy to write. And I can pinpoint the books that were easy to write, and they're the ones that approach fun more than anything else. So, in a way, it's not what you're getting out of the actual book, it's what's going into it, it's whether it's hard or not, I think. In that sense, I always find short stories fun because you know they're not going to run away with you, that you can manage them, that they're, you know, they're, you can look at them on the table and see the whole thing. It's what's not fun about writing is knowing you're in for a long haul because... Every time you write a book, you're proving that you can write that book. Well, that's how I look at a book. I'm, oh, my goodness, after all this time. No, no, it's not that. It's not I'm proving I'm a writer. It's proving I can write this book. Each one. Because each book is a kind of a challenge. Because you start off thinking, oh, I'm going to write about that and this, and that's great. And that's, that's the fun bit is at the beginning when you're thinking about what you're going to write. And then when you find yourself mired in the middle of it, you're thinking, I don't know if I can pull this off. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can get to that end point that I always visualised was the point I was going to get to. So there's always a bit in the middle where you doubt the book itself, not really yourself, because I never have things like blank page syndrome or any of that. It's just whether you can rank, you can see me now, no one else can see me, but you can see me using my hands like it's almost like I'm moulding clay. It's a very physical feeling of wrangling and wrestling this book to the ground and making it work. So in that sense, I think it's, that's not fun, but it's interesting. So I mean, something can be interesting and not be fun, I think. And I find the word playful very difficult. Yeah, <laughs> that, I also have put that in, in those rabbit ears. Um, I think it's because people, your work is too entertaining to be called experimental. And so that, that's how... Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go with experimental either because I think, I think experimental fiction was being done 100 years ago. I don't think anyone's doing anything particularly experimental. No, no one's doing anything more experimental than it was being done 100 years ago, I don't think. So, but also experimental. Every, every book's an experiment, you know. And, and fiction is open to... You can write anything you want. And I think in that sense, all fiction's experimental because nobody is standing over you with a big stick unless you're writing truly commercial fiction for a commercial publisher that's telling you what, to, you know, what your audience is. Unless you're writing commercial fiction... You, you can do what you want. And in that sense, it's all experimental. I mean, people may not wish to buy it or read it or say it's rubbish, but you are the god of this small kingdom. Ah, which is something that you are, and again, I want to avoid sort of clunky words like metafiction and, and postmodern, but you, especially in Life After Life, but here again, seem to quite enjoy teasing away at the fourth wall and the idea that the novelist is God and the, the novelist is the creator. And I thought, again, trying to avoid words like play and uh, and have fun, but here you do... Let's make a list. Let's yeah, make a list exactly. of all the words that we want to avoid and then all the ones that are in rabbit ears. <laughs> um, you seem to be having fun with the spy convention, the conventions of the spy novel here. I mean, there's invisible ink, there are, there's secret mm. cameras in, hidden in cigarette lighters. Only and because they did have these things. So I wasn't inventing those things. And, and those things were invented during the Second World War because it's, it's set in 
in 1940 when really the Secret Service is, although it's been on the go since 1905, they've not really done much. They've not had much to do. And then suddenly they've got a war on their hands and they've got the threat of the fifth column on their hands. And suddenly they have to start thinking of all the things you could do, you know, and so as all wars, you know, push invention as we know, so that they're almost, to me, when you, you're reading books of this period, they're, they're, they're naive in some ways. You know, they, they're at the beginning of something. And now when you look where spying is now, big journey. Mm. Um, so, so I'm having fun with it. And I think they were having fun with it as well, as I think they're going, oh, look, look what tiny camera you can have. And, and this is how you're going to use it. And, you know, Joan Miller was sent to the general post office at Dollars Hill to learn how to open envelopes and packets. And you think, oh, that sounds the kind of thing I would really like to be doing. I wish someone would say to me, oh, I'm going to teach you how to do secret things. You know, and that's, that's what lies at the heart of the book, I think, is that sense of secret things, except that nobody really knows which of the secret things and which aren't. I think you have said that you would go back in a heartbeat to the Blitz, which seems to me an extraordinary thing to say. I mean, I would want to be chucked out of any sort of air raid shelter for fear that someone would do me over in there for whimpering all night. I mean, why does the war? <laughs> why does the war hold such a fascination for you? Why? Why have you returned to it now? It's, I mean, it, it's there. I mean, I, Margaret Atwood always says that, that being born in 1939 entirely shaped her consciousness and therefore her fiction. And you, of course, I think you were born in 1951, so you just missed it. But it's very but it much still shaped my consciousness. There, yeah. Yes, because you you're aware of having missed something uh, tremendous. I mean, tremendous and not in the fun yeah. sense of the word. And I think. That does inform a lot of my writing, but also not just the war, but the period after the war, because I find that really interesting, that gritty, dark, miserable, depressive time after the war before things started to blossom again, before there was more money and food. And, you know, I was 1951. I was born into a time, a world that was still on the ration, and that's six years after the war. So that interests me. Austerity interests me in a strange way, but I think... The war is just such a feeding ground for novelists. There's so much packed into so few years and so much drama and death and horror and joy and all of those human emotions are compacted and they're just waiting there for you to unpack them and explore them again and re-reveal them in a way, I think. But it's, you know, there is a, the, the dark side. Of, everything is attracted to novelists, so there's no doubt. And there's nothing darker than war, really. So I think that's what it is. But with this book, with transcription, I didn't really feel I was returning to the war because I thought with the Blitz, I did the whole, you know, we're out buying extra batteries and it's all going to be horrible and there's the bombs and everything. And with and I think with God in Ruins, we, you pretty much know what it feels like to, to drive up, drive, fly, yeah, fly, 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 fly. <laughs> and And Bombing. so that was two very different aspects of the war. But with this, I was more interested in that very hazy period, which people don't haven't really explored very much of the phony war. So, you know, we have hindsight, but in 1940, when this book is set, people did not know that there was going to be a massive bombing campaign on both sides. They didn't realise it was going to turn into a war of attrition of bombing. They didn't know that France would fall. They didn't know that we'd be driven out of Dunkirk. They didn't know war would last that long. There were so many things. I think you know, everyone thought it was going to be a, a gas attack, that war was going to come from gas, and that was going to be the big problem. And so I think the paranoia that that gap, that almost two years of nothing happening before the, the Battle of Britain, I think was, was very fertile for that atmosphere in the book of 
ambivalence and secrecy and not really knowing, not really understanding what war meant, but fearing it was coming from places it wasn't going to come from. Because it didn't, the threat didn't come from the fifth column who were in this book. It wasn't the fascist sympathisers who were going to prove to be the real threat. So I think that was... I wasn't concerned with, you know, people not having enough food or being killed by bombs or any of that stuff that we associate really with the war. It was more an, an, an edgy sort of atmosphere that I was interested in. And you really do feel that very... You're always brilliant at creating what the feel of a period is like. I mean, you, you say it's about ambivalence and secrecy. And I think it's fair to say that questions of sort of morality and justice or the grey area between ethics and legality often seems to play a part in your novels Um, characters sometimes do very bad things and get away with it but as readers we think we can see why they have done it and that is at work again here isn't it I think so I remember a judge well a sheriff in Scotland saying to me what does justice have to do with the law and I thought okay Uh, but I think Dr Hunter in When Will There Be Good News who is a murderess in fact but she says you know what's what's justice got to do with the law what's justice got to do they think you make your own morality and I think that's always interesting in characters to see where their own sense of ethics is going to take them because that's more interesting than people who go no that's right that's wrong this is black this is white it's when you have to make your own in a much more existential universe that you have to decide yourself what's the right thing to do and, and obviously that's heightened in times of war and yeah. espionage yeah. is all, it's all about that isn't it it's always mean to quote things back at people, but you have said that you can't write a novel about happy people having happy lives, a la Tolstoy, and that one of your ambitions is to write a happy novel with happy characters. I no longer particularly have that ambition. <laughs> I was going to say, but I think you've still got time if you do, because this, this still isn't... <laughs> it's, even though the, it's joyful or... Um, again trying to avoid the word fun it, it it's not a happy novel I mean she's she's quite broken isn't she yes she is and she's broken right from the beginning yes. in fact and I think like it's, physically yes. and emotionally and I think that's we're not giving anything away here and it opens no. with with poor Julia age 60 being run over <laughs> by a car or just after a and it just goes the downhill wall. from there <laughs> She doesn't even get to hear the five, the five concerts she's bought tickets for. I think, well, how do you write about happiness? It's like, it's like, you know, you can write about romance, although I'm absolutely rubbish at it. But then at the happy ever, ever after stage, what, what is there to write about? In a way? Because conflict is always at the heart of novels, isn't it? And, and identity, which this, if this book's going to be about anything, I suppose it is about identity. And that's because it's such a shifting quality in this book that nobody really knows who anyone is and we don't necessarily know who anyone is and I'm not sure I necessarily know who everyone is so that that's that's very much the the thing that motors that sense of ambivalence I think but happiness I would no, you know you're right I would still like to write about happiness but there's so much misery to write about that it seems I'll never get around to it that brings me on to a question I was going to ask you as well I've interviewed recently Uh, a succession of leading female authors from Margaret Atwood to Marilyn Robinson. And I've been quite amazed at how hopeful they seem to be uh, in in these apparently rather hopeless times uh, about the world. Do you feel any more sort of optimistic about the world and the future? No. (laughs) I think it's a simple answer. I think individuals give me 
hope for an optimism. But on a, on a grander scale, I just feel we are, you know, everyone, every generation, every, you, you know, from the Egyptians onwards have probably gone, oh, things are so much worse than they used to be. But I genuinely do feel they are worse in some way. And I think maybe it's just because we don't know how, there's a sense we don't know the outcome anymore. And we don't know what truth is anymore. And we have always lived in, you know, since the war, in a relatively stable state. And we have understood what's true and what's not, even if it hasn't been. But now we don't even know where that lies, I think. And we also don't know what the future holds in a way that, from my generation onwards, from that 1945 generation onwards, we've always felt that, you know, there may be ups and downs, there may be the occasional missile crisis, and there's certainly been wars, but we feel that we've we've lived in a steady state, and now we don't feel that anymore. So I feel that sense of unease, and that worries me, that sense of unease, because I think out of unease grows all kinds of extremism, really. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Your novels have always been attracted to darkness or that there has been mm-hmm. darkness in your books. Where does, where does that come from? Does it come from... I think a very early interview of you, which maybe is why you avoid doing them, said that you were temperamentally gloomy. I think I think you described yourself as temperamentally gloomy, at least I hope you did. Uh, <laughs> I did well, do you know, I don't think I am. I actually in myself, I'm maybe I'm more maybe I've improved since that early interview, but I in myself I'm really quite a cheerful person. I don't wake up in a state of doom and gloom or go to bed in a state of doom and gloom. I, I'm pretty well balanced in that sense, I think. So I think I think I felt a lot of darkness in my childhood, and I, I'm not sure where that came from. I mean, I can guess certain things, but I, I feel... Well, guess, guess. Well, I think I was illegitimate, for one thing, and I think there was probably, although my parents were together, I suspect there was a lot of tension and stress around that fact, because in 1951, obviously, that wasn't... And I think they pretended to be married, but they were very reluctant to talk about... My mother was very reluctant to talk about the past... And for a long time, I, I just presumed I was adopted. <laughs> and then I discovered that, no, no, actually, they were my parents. And I think there was a lot of strain came from having been like many, many women in her generation after the war, being kind of forced back into roles that were not necessarily what would be chosen. So, you know, she that's it. She was having a baby that was illegitimate. She was going to have to go ahead with that whole um, she'd married during the war, a disastrous, some kind of disastrous marriage, and she couldn't get a divorce. So, you know, there was all of that, I think, which probably informed her. And I think my father himself had a very awful childhood, and I don't know if that taints things. I don't know. He wasn't a, you know, he was a, he too was a cheerful person. He had a great sense of humour, but there was always something there that I never really got to grips with, I think. And I think it made me very fearful, and I think being an only child... I was just going to say, because Julia's really unusual among your characters, 
She's, just, she's not trailing child. all these siblings. No, because no. you she's write so affectionately about the Todds who, who are the And I think I would, I really felt the lack of a, a larger family of siblings. Is that why you spend so long creating these big I probably family. do. And dogs, I don't have a dog, so I spend a lot of time making up dogs. Ah, <laughs> now the, on the subject of the dog, I also, you're on record as saying the only that you're a ruthless writer and the only time you felt really sad in your huge body count is when you killed off the dog in um, behind the scenes. In yeah, the that was awful. <laughs> you say that you're a sadistic, masochistic kind of writer. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I'm very sadistic with characters, I think, in, in that I am in absolute control of them. There's not, you don't have any of that, oh, the characters took over kind of stuff. They are mine, and I do with them as I will, you know, as flies to wandering boys. But I am relatively kind to characters because I try to give, you know, light and shade to them. But I think all writers are sadistic in that sense, aren't they? Because they're going to make people do... I would never do what Anna Sewell did and kill Ginger in Black Beauty. So there's a a limit to... I would never kill Bambi's mother. I'm not that kind of writer. So if I do have to kill someone, a, a character, I do think... Long you, do, and hard. you do kill quite a few of them. I once did a body count for the novel we talked about in Hay, and we were into double figures doesn't even cover it. Crime novels, what can I say? <laughs> big body count, war, war. big body count. <laughs> yes. Okay, so my ambition in life is to write a happy novel about happy people where nobody dies. <laughs> we might have to wait a while. Okay. <laughs> Has it become since behind the scenes? Has it? Be, is it becoming? Is the process becoming any easier over the years? Is it changing at all? I think it's very different with every book. Um, I think I'm a much more confident writer because I know I can do it. I've actually written ten novels, not nine. So I think I know that I can do it, and therefore I don't have. You know, it's sort of maybe. In the early days, I would think, oh, I don't know if I've got another novel. Can I write another novel? <laughs> but now I just think, yeah, well, I've done it before, so surely I can do it again. So I go in with a certain kind of you know, casual air to it. And as long as I've got a title and, and an idea and a beginning and an end, then I feel, well, I've got the, you know, the basic structure. All I have to do is to fill in, you know, join up the dots, which is obviously the difficult bit. So that's different, definitely. Uh, I feel much more relaxed writing. I'm also much more forensic in the way I construct sentences and use words. I'm much more careful. And I, although I've always been a neurotic rewriter, I think I probably rewrite even more nowadays just to make sure everything's just how Do I want it to be. Do you go along? Oh, yeah, all the time. I, I never really have a final draft. I have a light final draft, but I never have a, a big rewrite because I, re, I rewrite obsessively at the beginning so the the first chapter will be rewritten so many times I wouldn't know how to count them because it aids the thought process because as you're rewriting the beginning that's reassuring because I always think if I could only stop rewriting the first part of very tiny little pieces I would save you know no 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 no, I think I mean I have no I have to go through it you think to get to the I have no understanding of the neurological process that goes into writing (laughs) but I do know that if you you re- you rewrite a lot at the beginning. For me, I mean, it may not work for everyone, but if I rewrite a lot at the beginning, what I'm actually doing is it's thinking. It's unconscious thinking, but it's definitely helping me to move on. So those the first chapter will always take 20 times longer than the last chapter, probably 50 times longer than the last chapter, because by the last chapter, you know what you're doing. Well, hopefully, you know what you're doing before the last chapter. But I think I I love rewriting 
Uh, I find it really therapeutic. So I will go back and reread the first chapter of a book when I'm virtually finished that book, and I, and I will reread the whole book again fast, obviously, because I know what's going to happen. But it's very important to keep the feel of the book in my head, yeah. and you can't do that by by looking at any notes you've taken or thinking about it. I can't do anything just by sitting and thinking. thinking yeah. I have to be looking at it, and that's the only way that I can feel it, because feeling is important to me. Creating atmosphere is really important, because I love that. That is, to me, although it's difficult and challenging, that is a fun part, to try and recreate an atmosphere. And I can only do that by that obsessive rereading and rewriting, because then I'm back in that atmosphere, I think. Is that part of why you're drawn to historical fiction, do you think? I think so, but I was thinking the other day, I would like to write something that's set further back in time and I was thinking I don't know can I successfully recreate something that's so far out of touch I'm thinking 17th century early 18th century and I'm not sure how easy that would be or even how attractive I find that I find the more recent past much more interesting to recreate talking about the 17th century I recently interviewed Rose Tremaine who um she she said that she felt peeved that, and she actually still admits it, that the booker was sort of snooty about historical fiction for so long. Of course, Hilary mm. Mantel's come along mm. now with Thomas Cromwell and changed all that. I mean, do you feel, and, and you've compounded your sins by not only writing historical fiction, but by writing crime f- I know, fiction. I know, no hope for me. Um, is that something, I mean, does it bother you? Do you think there is a certain snobbiness at play towards genres like history and crime? Yes, but then I think there's a huge snobbishness in the very small section at the top of the literary world. I I live in Scotland, I live in Edinburgh, so I'm not part of any coteries. I'm not part of the world, that world at all. So I'm still an outsider to that world. But I do think there's an immense amount of, I don't even know what the word is. I suppose snobbishness is a good word, but it's it's a protectiveness and a defensiveness about a very small corner of the world, I think, and doesn't really relate to what people read or what people think, I think. I don't mind being stuck in a, the, a genre box because I don't think of myself in that box. It's just it's another book I'm writing and, OK, it's historical, maybe it's got a detective in it, but I don't really see myself that way. I think I need to write in other genres so that I have the whole you spectrum. You've done spies now. Now I need to do romance, but as we know, this is very difficult for me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, to me it's just the book I'm working on. But, and in a sense, that's naive of me. But, you know, what, what can you do? We used to have a column in Guardian Review called Writers' Rooms, which is exactly what it says. Mm. It was a sort of posh hello where we snooped around in writers' houses and took... Which a horrendous idea. Yeah, took pictures, <laughs> exactly. And then when we ran out of writers who were prepared to let us photograph their studies, um, we then turned it into a column of writers going through their writing day, telling us in the most boring detail as possible mm. what they actually did. It was hugely popular. And um, seeing as you very sensibly declined to do it every time I asked you, and now <laughs> I've got you here, um, if you... You could tell us as boringly as you possibly can about how you actually do it. I mean, do you have a routine? Do you clock off at 5.30 for a gin and tonic, as an alarming number of our writers seem to do? Oh, do they? Um, I, my routine does change over time, so I'm, it's not that I, every single book will have the same routine. I think I get more restless about being in the same place, so I like to going to move around more, move around the house more. As it, so I'm not always thinking, right, this is absolutely where I, I have, have to be to write, to write this book. But I am. It's pretty boring. No, no, we like the boring. I take 
longer to get going because I've realised I'm in it for the long run. Yeah. So I no longer have that sense of, oh, my God, I'm only going to be working for another five years. I'd better get on. Now I'm just thinking, well, this is it. I, this is the donkey that's going to be flogged until I drop in harness. So I may as well just be a bit more relaxed. So I take much longer in the morning to to get round to. And it's not, I'm, putting, I'm not putting off. I'm just kind of, you know, I like messing about. I like fittering around the house and, you know, having another cup of coffee and, you know, just not getting too fraught about the working day. So you don't have a set number of words that you need to get No, I usually start about 9.30 and I listen to Radio 2 in the morning because I find that quite soothing because I, like I like Ken Bruce a lot. <laughs> That's I'm, definitely a first. I'm a big Ken Bruce fan. No, I do. But I can't listen to all talk radio. I can't listen to talking. So then I kind of either switch to, you know, music or classic FM or Radio 3. Uh, so my big main writing point is... 8.30 to 12.30, and that's when I get most done. I'm a lark. I'm up at five. So, I mean, if I pushed myself, I could be get another four hours in. And then I start fishing around a bit more, and then I might go back to it. But I don't give myself... With this, recently, I have given myself challenges. Like, you have to written a thousand words by the end of the day, because I respond quite well to discipline. Mm-hmm. And that has worked quite well. But previously, I haven't, because... Just to write the words doesn't mean they're good words. Yeah. But I've been trying to be more focused so that the hours I write are productive hours and I just don't spend all my time playing solitaire in my young and, and thinking that, you know, oh, I could just rest mm-hmm. for five minutes so that they're more productive and that works better for me. How long does it, how long, I mean, does it, and does it differ if, you, if it's a historical novel and you've got to check out how you get a Halifax off the ground? No, because I did, I, I did a lot of research yeah. for the war books beforehand and then went back to check afterwards so that the writing period was free and I wasn't bound by thinking oh god you know what what were the wheels like and oh does he really do that and it's Rose so Tremaine isn't it I think you've quoted her where she says you know for every fact you have you make, make up one, one up, up. Yeah. yes and hopefully nobody can tell the difference and and so the research is done to inspire you I think that's how I look at research. It's so that you're constantly finding things and going, oh, did you know? Because that's it. That's to me is really fascinating. And those are the things that even at the beginning make you think. Like, I'm planning a book, not the next book or the book after that, but the book after that. Oh my goodness! Just say it's, that again. That's uh, another. Not the yeah, three, three books three away. Books three away. books away. You've got three books all circling around overhead. Well, I've, got, I've got one written, and then I've got the next one, and then I've got a big one after that and the big one after that is the kind of research that you you find something out by chance and you go oh wow that's really good because that fits in with that and then that makes you think about something else and then so it's a it's a process that takes you from one thing to another it's like looking at the bibliography of a let's say of a, of a history book and then you see another book that you think oh that would be a great book I didn't know about that book and then you get that book and that book's got a bibliography that's got another book in it so it's this sort of advancing quite slowly and it's better to do it quite slowly because again you're thinking unconsciously while you're doing that so if I'm doing a book that requires research not all books require research then it's I find it quite good to be doing that research while I'm writing the book before. Gosh. I sound like a workaholic, but I'm not. If you did actually watch this boring day, you'd think, my God, she spends a lot of time not, work, not writing. That sounds like an awful lot to keep in your head. Yes, I do keep quite a lot in my head. I keep less in my head than I used to. I'm more compartmentalised about what I have in my head. And I'm more trusting of that bit at the back of the brain that does the thinking unconsciously. 
I always think of it as being like on the back burner. It's not something I'm accessing on a regular basis, but I know it's working. And again, the mystery of the neurological processes of writing, which are completely beyond me, but I know I, know I do a lot of thinking without thinking. Now, writers are always infuriatingly coy about what they're working on now, but as soon as you've already finished it, you've got no excuse. No, I can't. My publicist has told me I can't talk She's about sitting it. here. Go on. Oh, it's a different publicist, not that <laughs> one. She doesn't even know. <laughs> Only because my publicist thinks it will confuse people because then they'll think that that's the book that's coming out. I would happily talk to you about it, but no, I'm under really strict sure, orders not to talk about it. Okay, so not that one, but the one... The after one the, the one after, yeah. the one after, the one after, the one after. The big one that's going to the involve big a lot one, of research. The big one that involves a lot of research is based around film and sight and D-Day. Ah, so we're... It's, it's called everything. it's called the line of sight. It has a title. Yeah, a title. Mm. Oh, I always I, call, I, call, I have titles for. I could I could sell you titles. I have so many titles. Yeah. <laughs> Can't think without a title. Can't even consider thinking without a title. Now I have to ask this for all the Brody fans out there. So you've mm. just gone three books ahead, and I didn't hear any mention of him. Um, he's been on a very long holiday. Um, is he going to come back, or Maybe. has he himself been done for? No, no, he may, he may, he may mm. be on his way back from holiday. Yeah. What more can I say? <laughs> <laughs> we just made your publicist rather cross. <laughs> She's not listening, <laughs> um, and you won't tell, will you, Sally? <laughs> <laughs> My final, final question: If, like Ursula, in life after life, you had a chance to keep doing it, to coming back and giving yes. it another go. Is there anything you'd do differently? What would you do differently? Well, you know, yours, as a mother, yours have to say, oh, I'd have to have the same children because you can't redo that bit of your life. Mm -hmm. So given that I've got the same children, would I do differently? I would, um, I'd I'd have a different career, definitely. Uh, I wouldn't be a writer. No. No. That would be a terrible shame for all of us. Why? Oh, (laughs) because... There's, there's, there's other things that I think would have interested me more. I would have joined MI5, definitely. Yes, I would have. I would have been a spy, or I would have become an antiques expert in beautiful things. You would have actually gone behind the scenes at the museum. Yes, quite well. Well said. That was Kate Atkinson speaking with Lisa Allardyce. Transcription is published by Doubleday and is out now. Next week, it's the end. Carl Ove Nausgaard's The End is the final book in his six-volume autobiographical novel series, My Struggle. Join us for a Guardian Live episode, where Claire Armitstead sits down with him to chat about his extremely personal and utterly compelling exploration of a life day-to-day. In the meantime, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from, and join the discussion on Twitter or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. As always, if you'd prefer to contact us directly, you can email us at bookspodcast at theguardian.com. But for now, from me, Sean Kane, and our producer, Susanna Tresillian, goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.